Please join me in prayer. Most merciful God, creator of heaven and earth, protector and redeemer of your people, hear our prayers this morning. We observe our present age and the ease with which enmity develops between neighbors. We see in ourselves it is too easy to forget our Lord's command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we feel what the psalmist exclaimed, Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. For I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Specifically, we pray for those suffering from the effects of the war in Ukraine, Israel, and Palestine. Protect the innocent and bring about true and lasting peace, reconciliation, and an end to war that is only possible through your power. We praise you this morning for the births of James William Wallowand, son of Katie and Jonathan and brother to Charlie, James, and Dottie, for Jane Florence Holman, daughter of Nathan and Emily, Catherine Louise Johnson, daughter of Jason and Anna, and granddaughter of Jeff and Jessica Dice, August Martin Sherman, grandson of Sean and Susan Doyle, and Stone Benjamin Loveless Morales, grandson of Scott and Manette Loveless. For these children, we pray that they grow in knowledge and love of you through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, that they may never know a day apart from your love and mercy. Surround them with the love of family and your church to encourage them to love you and out of the mercy you have given them to live generously and compassionately towards all neighbors. We thank you for the reminder of your faithfulness as seen in bringing covenant children to join the church this morning and to profess their faith. We praise you for the work only you can do in their hearts. Protect and keep them. Send your spirit to allow them to persevere. Give them brothers and sisters to speak the truth to them again and again when they doubt or are tempted to wander from the still waters and green pastures to which you have led us. Remind them and us of your unfailing promises. We continue to pray for Dave, Catherine, Baker, and Dave and Catherine's families. We grieve with them in the death of Christopher Luke Driscoll. Comfort them. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. Help us to hold fast to the promises from this psalm, that you turn our tears to joy, that someday you will will redeem and restore all things, even our sorrow and grief. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray for Kathy Gerardo that she will speedily recover from back surgery, and we continue to pray for the health of Bill and Cindy Hay. Grant Henry Morris and John Fountain a safe and fruitful trip with the United Kingdom Partnership Conference this week. Reveal to them ways that covenant can support and encourage those you have called to ministry in the United Kingdom. And as Robbie teaches us this morning, prepare our hearts for your word and spirit to minister to us correcting us where needed, and encouraging our ever-fickle hearts to love you and to place our faith in only you and not in ourselves. We offer these praises and prayers through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, today we're continuing our study in the book of Numbers, and we're in Numbers chapter 19. And I don't title my sermons, but if I... titled this one, it might be, Even the Weird Stuff is About Jesus. That might be a fitting title for Numbers 19. Um, it, 
it strikes us, and I think when I read it, at first it probably will strike you as exceedingly strange and odd. It's a very unique law, and it's unique because we have a story, and it's a dramatic story about God's covenant people who've been rescued by God's grace, and they're passing through the wilderness, and they're on the way to the promised land, and and there's just been a massive rebellion, and and you want to hear what's going to happen next in the story. What will happen next? Who will rebel next? What will, will God's people be obedient? Will they be faithful? What will happen next? In the middle of that story, you have a whole chapter, 22 verses, a law about ritual impurity, a contamination law. And for us, it just seems strange. But for them, it was very, very practical because in the most recent rebellion, 14,700 people died. They died under God's righteous judgment. And so they're faced with death in a very severe way. It's right in front of them. Their relatives and neighbors would have died. And the law here in Numbers 19 is about contamination when you come into contact with the dead. So it seems strange to us when we read it, but it's actually, it would have been very practical to them. And I just want us to see three things today as we turn our attention to the scriptures and we'll see it in two ways. But first of all, God knows how to cleanse his people. God knows how to make his people clean. Secondly, when God is gracious, he's always being even more generous than it appears at first. Then thirdly, we're going to see that God is opposed to death and God has a plan to eliminate death itself from all the spaces where uh, he dwells. So uh, let's turn our attention now uh, to Numbers 19. If you read along with me, beginning in verse one, we'll read part of it now and look at parts later. After the death of 14,700 under God's judgment, Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the statute of the law that Yahweh has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest and it should be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person. The body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself 
defiles the tabernacle of Yahweh. And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the waters for impurity was not thrown. The water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you take a very ancient law about ritual contamination and show us the glories of your son and our salvation and your ultimate plan for your whole creation today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I told you it was strange. Uh, It is a very unique uh, law, but like I said, it was very practical for the people of God. They just experienced the death of 14,700 people from the covenant community, and they already knew that contamination with the dead made them ceremonially unclean. And now they've got to think about what are they going to do when so many people would have to bury a relative, uh, would have had contact with a neighbor, would have been around someone who had died. So uh, huge proportions of God's people would have become ceremonially unclean at the time of the death of 14,700 people. Just the family members that would have been involved in burying them, they all would have been unclean. And what God could have required them is that each would have sacrificed a lamb or a ram or a bull and come and uh, and gone through process to to become clean. But God, in his generous kindness, makes something way less expensive, expensive, available to them so that they can have, they can go from being ritually unclean to be ritually clean, from having ritual impurity to having ritual impurity. So since it's so weird for a minute, I'm just going to talk about ritual impurity for a minute so we can understand it. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was in Peru having a great time. I'll tell you more about it later. Uh, At the end of that time, I started feeling sick. When I got home, I tested last Sunday morning, I tested positive for COVID. Well, I'd been away from Chrissy for a week and I really wanted to hug and kiss my wife. But when you have COVID, you can't do that. Um, And I couldn't go to the grocery store and I couldn't go to the restaurant. I couldn't come here on Sunday morning and be around you. Why? Because I had COVID. That's something that can spread easily. And so that's a little bit of what it was like to be ceremonially unclean. It wasn't sinful for me to get COVID in Peru, but when I had it, um, I was contaminated and I could have, it could have spread from me to you. That's a little bit like what the ritual impurity was in the old Testament. It was something that was external and, um, ritual. It didn't say that they had actually done something wrong in many cases, uh, but there was a ritual impurity that showed, um, that, that, that showed up relative to how God told them uh, to live their lives. They wanted to live in a state of purity or cleanliness versus impurity. Here's another example. Uh, sometimes uh, my grandchildren come and visit me and uh, every now and then I, they got a couple times they arrived early and of course Christy and I are trying to cook dinner because they're arriving at dinner time and this is the most disappointing thing I'm cutting raw chicken as my grandchildren get to my house well my grandchildren run in the house what I want to do I want to hug them and kiss them and rub their soft faces but I've just been cut, 
cutting raw chicken. I can't do that. That's a little bit like being ceremonially unclean. Uh, it, 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 I didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't bad to cut chicken. It wasn't bad to cook, help Chrissy cook dinner for my grandchildren. Those weren't bad things. But I wasn't about to touch my sweet little grandchildren with my raw chicken hands. Uh, that's a little bit of what it's like in the ancient world to be ceremonially unclean. It isn't wrong, uh, but it, something has to be done. So if I hear their car pulling up, what I'm going to do? I'm going to run to that sink and wash my hands as quickly as possible and as thoroughly as possible and draw them so I can embrace them when they come in. Uh, this is a little bit what it's like to have this ceremonial, ceremonial impurity, but let me talk to you about it for what it meant, what they would have been understanding, why God had them in the school of ceremonial impurity. What was that all about? Three quick things about that. One thing that God was teaching them through the school of ritual impurity and ritual purity was simply this, that he was actually in their presence, that he was among them, that he was perfectly holy, perfectly clean, and that states of perfection could draw near him, but not states of imperfection. God was teaching them that he really, really was in their midst, that he really did live among them. That's one thing. But God was also teaching them about his holiness and their defilement by teaching this Uh, ritual impurity, these laws, that he was very holy, that they uh, could be defiled in all kinds of ways, but ultimately, thirdly, that they're what he was really teaching them. And that now what we understand by reading the whole story of the Bible is that their defilement was way deeper than ritual external ick. Really and truly, the real defilement was internal It was in their hearts, it was in their minds, it was who they were on the inside because they weren't truly holy. And so he taught them all these laws and symbols externally so they would learn to understand that God was very, very holy and they were not. It was to, he had them in school to teach them that something great and profound was going to be needed for people to really dwell in his midst. That's what all the priesthood is about. That's what all the sacrifice is about. It's all the laws of the tabernacle are all to teach God's people this over and over again. And even these strange to us laws about ritual impurity are meant to teach God's people this. And so uh, that's an important point to hold on for for the rest of this message. The true defilement is not external, not visible, but the defilement that happens in our hearts. Maybe you've had that nightmare where your thought life is produced like a movie on the internet for everyone to see. Maybe you've had that moment where you realized what your heart really, really wanted is absolutely forbidden. And if God gave you what you really wanted, it would wreck every life around you. Maybe you've had that experience when you've done exactly what God has forbidden. You've done exactly what he said you shouldn't do, or you've longed for it in heart, or you've imagined it and thought about it and longed for it. And you realize when you catch yourself longing for things that are forbidden, thinking thoughts that aren't holy and aren't true, and maybe, and often at times, acting upon these illicit desires, you feel guilty and dirty and defiled. These are the internal realities. The external ceremonial uncleanness is meant to teach us that we have real moral impurity, 
at the heart level before the holy God, we are not right. We're dirty and unclean and guilty. Even at just the level of our thoughts and desires, much less our speech acts and the things that we do with our hands and our bodies. This whole system was meant to help God's people do the math on that, that the defilement's deeper than the external reality. Well, for a minute here, I want to think about, uh, can God clean his people? And how did this uh, process work? Um, the ritual was meant to teach them the real defilement was internal, but how did this cleansing happen? So we read it just a minute ago. Here, here's what God did to people who were surrounded by death, 14,700 deaths. Instead of requiring each one to bring a lamb or a ram or a bull, et cetera, uh, to, to, be, to be made clean, uh, he, he basically said, hey, have a red heifer, a red cow brought to you, one who is without blemish, a perfect one, who's young. In other words, it's never been yoked. So you, this is a, a young, energetic, uh, whole, blameless red cow. And what they're going to do is they're going to bring the red cow to Eliezer, the priest. They're going to take it outside the camp and they are going to burn it into ashes. And when they burn that whole red cow, interesting red, that whole red cow into ashes, they're going to throw on it some cedar wood because it's also red and a hyssop branch. And they use hyssop branches later as well. And some scarlet thread, all this red stuff. And they're going to burn all the red stuff down into ash. And then another clean person is going to go out and get all the ash and put it in a clean place. And they're going to hold on to it and keep it for the waters of purification. And then what's going to happen um, when someone needs to be cleansed ceremonially, because externally they're unclean, they touch the dead body. They can go out there anytime and get that ash and put it in a bowl and put living water. That's water from like a stream or a creek, living water, mix it up and then take a hyssop branch. And a hyssop branch was kind of like a, a bushy twiggy thing uh, that they could dip into the, into, into the red liquid. The symbolic blood. It's not blood. No, it's the ashes of a red cow and cedar wood and, and the scarlet yarn. It's symbolic blood. And they'll dip the, the hyss- hyssop branch in that. And then the person who's become defiled by touching a dead body, they'll be unclean for seven days. But on the third day, a clean man, someone who is not unclean, who's not defiled, will take the hyssop branch and throw this symbolic blood on the person on the third day and then wait four more days. And on the seventh day, take the symbolic blood and throw it on the person on the seventh day. And then after seven days, that person who's been symbolically unclean is now symbolically clean. You see, God's being very gracious. 14,700 people died because they rebelled against him. And now that contaminates uh, so many people throughout the camp. But God is offering something he's graciously uh, uh, making a provision so that they can go from being unclean to being clean. And he's doing it in a way that costs them very, very little. Instead of, you know, 30,000 people bringing him a lamb, they're going to take the ashes of this one red heifer, uh, add it to water, and uh, all these people will become clean just by doing what Yahweh says, it's very, 
very generous. Well, it's strange, isn't it? Here's what I want to do for a minute. I want to show you that the New Testament picks up on all these things and helps to see that ultimately God knows how to make his people clean. And he had a plan for that all along. And that plan was to send his son. So in your worship, God, will you turn back with me to page chapter, uh, page five in your worship, God. And we read this morning from Hebrews chapter nine. And I just want to emphasize a few things from that part from Hebrews 9 here for a moment. And this is uh, how the New Testament picks up this theme of how God can make his people clean. Uh, really, uh, I gave my points for today's sermon in a hint kind of way, but if you really want to know three, the three points for today's sermon, it's this. Because of Jesus, you are truly clean. Secondly, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's grace and generosity. And finally, we'll see in the end, God's going to fill the whole creation with his glory presence and there'll be no room for death. But first of all, because of Jesus, we are truly clean. Look what the, this epistle says, Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not the tabernacle that typified the heavenly throne room, not the temple that sort of foreshadowed the heavenly throne room. No, the real place. He entered once, verse 12, for all into the holy places, into the very presence of God, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Uh, Here, the author of, of Hebrews is underlining that God had a plan to cleanse his people. And here was God's plan. God had a son to send. And God will send his son into the world to live the life that you and I failed to live. God's son would be uh, born, as we confessed earlier, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and he would be sinless and undefiled. He would be the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. He would live a perfectly obedient, sinless life, his entire life, unblemished and undefiled. And at the end, what would he do with that unblemished, undefiled, beautiful life? But he would lay his life down on the cross in the place of the wicked and disobedient people like you and me. But that's not the end of the story. After Jesus lived his perfect, obedient life and died in the place of the wicked, he was raised again on the third day, vindicated as the only obedient son who ever lived. And then he ascends into heaven. And what does he do? He takes his own blood into the real throne room in the presence of God to secure for us eternal redemption. Think about how great that is. What if you had been back there and you had touched the bone in the field and you weren't sure what that, that rock was? You bent down and you pulled up. It's like, oh my goodness, that's the bone of a dead person. Well, here we go. Seven days. I'll go out. I'll go outside the camp for seven days. I'm ceremonially unclean. On the third day, will you please pick up that hyssop and throw that symbolic blood on me? Thank you. We'll wait four more days. Seventh day, will you do it again, please? Woo, ceremony, I'm clean. I can go back in and hang out with God's people and, and draw near to God's throne room. And then uh, two days later, my uncle dies and I have to help bury him. Here we go. Seven days again. On the third day, will you pick up, pick up that hyssop branch and throw the symbolic blood on me? And the seventh day, would you do it again? And then a month later, my aunt dies and I got to help bury her. And so just over and over and over again, but not with Jesus. 
You see, Jesus came and offered his life for you once and for all in perfection so that if you believe in him, you have received an eternal redemption. He never has to die again. He did it once for all, for all times. It's perfect and sufficient for eternity. That, my friends, is very, very good news. If you believe in Jesus, you're saved today. You'll be saved tomorrow. You've been redeemed for eternity. That's fantastic. But secondly, look at what uh, Hebrew says. Um, he did this to secure an eternal redemption. And, and how does he explain it? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, ding, 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 there's our passage being referred to. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification for the flesh, if all that stuff works to remove ritual uncleanness, the, the, the flesh, the outside, the external, the visible, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Oh, not only has he secured an eternal redemption for us, but he's working internally with us and clean, cleansing our conscience. He's already done it. Let me explain that. Maybe you're like me. Do you suppress the truth sometimes about your own waywardness? Do you try to outfox yourself about what's going on in your heart? We're going to suppress that, hold that down. Kind of ignore your conscience. Your conscience is telling you that you're in the wrong, but you know what? There's another show to watch. There's another book to read. There's other stats to check out. There's a thousand things to look at. Scroll, 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 scroll. Yeah, I'm not really going to deal with my conscience right now. Are you like me? Do you avoid the depths of your heart? Are you like me? Do you ignore your conscience sometime? I want to tell you, we don't have to live like that anymore. Don't follow that example of mine there. No, but look at this. The blood of Christ has purified our conscience. Here's what that means. When your heart convicts you, when your conscience convicts you, you don't have to suppress it at all. No, you run right to your conscience and you tell your, you agree with your conscience that you're guilty, but completely covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and completely forgiven. You sprint with your conscience to the throne of grace and you say, my conscience convicts me, but my savior bled for me. And therefore you'll know you're completely forgiven. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think it's so silly. Please forgive me. Sometimes I think my conscience is more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think my, my performance is, is too bad. It's too icky. It's too raw. I mean, for a preacher, good grief. Oh, it's awful and shameful. And I, and, I, and I think, oh, that's just too much for the blood of Jesus Christ. What Jesus Christ has done for us once for all has earned for us, secured for us an eternal redemption. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that our conscience is fully cleansed. Not by dead works, not by me working it out and working my way back to you, God. No, but by believing in Jesus Christ who shed his blood for me. Don't ignore your conscience. Take it to the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you and offered in heaven for you. 
But I want you to see also that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's grace and generosity. Did you notice in the passage, and we didn't read the second part, in verse 9 it says, a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes. And if you flip over, I'm not going to read all right now, but 17 through 19 is is helpful uh, in Numbers 19, verses 17. It says this, for the unclean, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt sin offering and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Verse 18, it's really important. Then a clean person shall take the hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it. Verse 19, the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean person on the third day and on the seventh day. You see, it's really important that a clean person gets involved. Because you're ceremonially unclean and you're outside the camp. What you really need outside the camp is somebody who's clean. And don't you see, when God is gracious to you and me, he's always wildly more generous than we can think or imagine. Because Jesus is the obedient son, the clean one. He, he was so clean. He was the temple in skin and bones. Do you remember when Jesus went and touched the leper, the leper became clean. But Jesus wasn't defiled because he's the holiness He's the contagious holiness, the temple of God, walking, living, and breathing. When Jesus touched somebody um, uh, that had a flow of blood, he didn't become unclean. That woman became clean. Why? Because Jesus is the tabernacle and a person on earth with all the cleanliness and power. When Jesus touched a dead girl and raised her from the dead, he didn't become unclean. She became clean and he brought her back to life because he's so clean. He's so perfect. He's the obedient son. He was the temple in flesh and blood. But what does 2 Corinthians 5.21 say? For your sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for you so that in him we might become the righteous of God. Do you see it? Jesus is the only clean man that ever lived. And the father's plan was to take all of my filth and defilement and put it on his son so that he would make me clean. He took all of our filth. What did they do? They burned the, the red heifer, the red cow out there with all of its bones, all of its skin and its stinky dung outside the camp. And that's exactly where they crucified Jesus Christ, our Lord, outside the gates of Jerusalem. So that he who was perfectly clean would take all of our sin upon himself and us by believing in him would be made clean in him. He died in our place. But death couldn't hold him. And that's the last place our passage takes us. Numbers 19 is about the defilement of death, contamination with death, touching a dead body. And the contamination, the defilement of death cannot be in the presence of God because God is the God of life. He's all life. All life comes from him. He is life itself. And the contamination of death cannot come in to God's presence. But Jesus died in the place of the wicked. And here's the end. In the end, God will fill his whole creation with his glory presence. That's the end. Heaven will come down to earth and God will fill everything with his holy presence. And when that happens, there'll be no room for death. Our God will purge every defilement out of his whole creation. And when the true God comes from heaven and brings heaven to earth, who in the world can live in his presence then? Anyone who believes in Jesus, who's been washed in his blood because eternal redemption belongs to us in his name.
Do you believe this? Little children who are community members today for the first time, I want you to know that reading the Bible is a, a great way to grow and know and love the Lord. And even the weird stuff is ultimately about Jesus Christ and God's great love for you and his free offer of salvation to anyone who would believe. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how thankful we are that we get to come to the table again today. Some of us for the hundredth of times, but some of us for the first time. Oh Lord, would you please grant us deep joy as we celebrate what you've done for us. Lord Jesus, help us learn that you offer yourself to us here, that here we have true fellowship with you, that we taste and see that you're good, that we remember what you have done for us and receive fresh grace and strength today. Help us, teach us for your glory and our good. Amen.